Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile AF, the podcast. This is episode 32 called Holly. So I want to come straight out the gate and say that Holly is hands down one of the strongest women and mamas I have met on my infertility journey and doing this podcast. Like so many of us, Holly has been through so much. She went through taking Clomid and having crazy side effects from that. She went through a couple of IUIs that didn't work. She had two IVFs that did take, but ultimately ended in losses. She and her partner also explored adoption and came within three weeks of taking home a baby before things unraveled. However, that is just kind of the first half of Holly's story. Without giving too much away, I will say that she does have a baby son, and he is so cute, but it has not come without its challenges. He was born with a very rare medical condition, and Holly and her partner are dealing with that right now. And as I said, she is amazing. Her story is inspiring, and it's incredible. And she told me at the very beginning of when we started talking that the reason she wanted to do this was because whenever she was struggling and feeling anguish, she always told herself that she would pay it forward. So she is today, and she continues to do so in her daily life. I can't say enough good things about her. I'm so glad I met her. Holly, you are just incredible. So without further ado, this is Holly's infertility story. Hi, Holly. Thank you so much for doing this. It's great to finally talk to you in person. We've been emailing a little bit, but I love to hear your voice. Thank you, Allie. I appreciate that you reached out and I'm so happy to be talking with you. You have been through a lot. We're going to get into all of that, but I just want to say that the way that I found out about you and your story is you wrote an article for Refinery29 and it was called Seven Lessons I Learned from My Journey to Conceive. So I thought the piece was great, and I would love to hear how that came about and why you felt it was so important to write that article. So um, when I was struggling with infertility, I didn't talk about it publicly or post about it on social media. And really, initially, I didn't know anyone who had gone through what I was experiencing. And so what I ended up doing was just going on all these online message boards of people who were dealing with infertility, trying to find ideas and information. And many times over the years that I was struggling, I promised myself I would pay it forward Mm -hmm. um, when I felt emotionally able to speak publicly about my experience. And I decided I'd do so online in the hopes that my experience could help someone else. Just like reading about other people's experiences, it helped me so much. Mm -hmm. So to that end, it was around 13 weeks into my viable pregnancy that I wrote three pieces about my experiences on medium.com. And then this year... When I realized that Infertility Awareness Week coincided with my son's first birthday, it felt like a sign to write some more, Uh Um, especially now that I have a little bit more distance from my experience and 
so yeah, I just wanted to share some pieces of advice and like I said, pay it forward because um, what I read online helped me so much. Yes, I love that too. And I agree with you. That's what I was always searching for was just trying to connect and trying to connect and trying to find that person that went through the specific things that I was going through. So I think it's so great that you did that. And that's the point of this podcast too, is just to share these stories and to provide some hope and just connection too for people. You know, they're not, all the stories aren't necessarily hopeful, but you know, it's, some, it's like when you hear something that you can relate to, you're like, oh God, thank God I'm not alone. So I think that exactly. we have the same kind of end goal in mind. The first thing I thought was really interesting where you were like, medical professionals don't know everything. And I thought that was a really good point because, you know, you go to these doctors and nurses and infertility specialists and you're like, there's, you don't know what to do a lot of the time. And you're just kind of putting all your, you know, faith in the fact that they do know. But fact of the matter is a lot of this is a guessing game, right? Yeah, I, I think a lot of us do feel like, okay, these are doctors or nurses and, and they know everything and we'll just listen to them. But over time, I realized, no, they don't really know everything. And I think with infertility, especially when you have um, unexplained, inf so I had unexplained infertility. And so especially with that, like the medical professionals really don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. And so what I learned is they would just make, what they were saying to me were really just suggestions. They were educated guesses. And so I learned to either kind of listen to them or not. Um, right. And just had to do my own research too. Right. So let's unpack that, that term, like unexplained infertility. What did that mean for you guys specifically? Because I think you wrote that you had tried for like about 18 months. And what was that like for you? Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, we, I went off birth control pill about a month before I turned 30. Mm -hmm. And I'd been on it for 11 years straight. So I didn't, I don't know. I was naive. I thought I would get pregnant right away, even though I'd been on it for so long mm -hmm. and that didn't happen. And I was, just kept trying to change things in my own life. Um, I was doing a lot of travel for work. And so I was like, okay, I'll try to do fewer trips. I need to be, you know, with my partner at the right time of the month. Otherwise this obviously won't work. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm a long distance runner. I, I've run several marathons and I was doing um, half, at least one half marathon a year at that time. And I cut back on my running and racing. I have eaten a lot of sugar in my life. I tried to, you know, give up sugar. Like I kept trying different things. Mm -hmm. And so none, nothing was working. And so after about 18 months, my gynecologist gave us prescriptions for different tests and everything came back normal. And so she was like, well, just keep trying, try not to stress. Okay. Um, and it was really frustrating to not have something to pinpoint and something to address. Right. Yeah. I want to talk about that more because I think that a lot of people you know, I haven't actually talked about unexplained infertility a lot here on the podcast. When there's no answers, it's got to just add a another level of frustration and like, you know, just not knowing what to do. So tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So after kind of getting nowhere with the, um, with the advice from the first OBGYN, I saw a second one and she told me about Clomid, which is a drug that can help regulate your ovulation. So one thing I did know about myself is that I had never been very regular in ovulating in my periods. It could range from 28 days to 35 days. Mm -hmm. So I did go on that for three months and um, I had terrible side effects and hated it and it didn't work. Mm -hmm. um, what were the side effects? Then, 
oh my goodness, I had crazy heavy bleeding, which I, I guess probably I'm lucky that I had never really had that before. I had hot flashes. Mm. I had paranoia. I was like having confused thoughts. I just didn't feel well. Yeah, it was pretty insane. And at the time I was um, on a contract for the United Nations. And I remember being on this trip, going to Istanbul, Turkey, where I was speaking at this international conference on violence against women. And I was like bleeding through everything. And I had like a few hours to sightsee before the conference. And I just, I was like... (laughs) It was just like a disaster. I just kept bleeding through oh, everything, God. trying to tie, you know, tie things around my waist. And then on the flight home, I just had the worst hot flashes, and I was like taking my sweatshirt on and off and on and off. Mm-hmm. So I remember that very vividly. Oh gosh! So how long were you on it? And when did you, when you got off, was it better right away, or did it take a minute to like get it out of your system? So I did it three months back to back, and then. Um, I wanted to meet with my OBGYN because I was just bleeding so much. I was like, this doesn't seem right. And it turned out that she had, um, we didn't, my partner and I, neither of us knew, but she had been pregnant and she was now on maternity leave and no one told us. Oh God. Um, so one of his friends, uh, now knew what we were going through, one of his coworkers, and she suggested an infertility clinic in our area. Um, and she had done IUI with them and gotten two sons from that process. And I, he and I didn't really know what IUIs were. So mm-hmm. we went and met with the infertility specialists, learned about them, and we were able to line things up so that I immediately started that process the okay. next month. So I didn't have a break. I went straight from Clomid to four rounds of IUI. Okay. So did you do the four IUIs back to back? I had to take one break when I had a trip to South Africa. So Mm -hmm. I did one round, took a break, and then did three. And actually, the second one was canceled because I tried different drugs. The first drug I did was Clomid, but it dried me out so much, I guess, from doing four months. So then I did Gonal F, and I responded too well to it. And I had so many eggs, they were worried that I would have multiple multiple eggs would be fertilized. So they canceled it. And it was so painful. I mean, they when I did IVF later, it was very similar. Like I had so many eggs and I was just bloated so huge. And I had to just wait for it to kind of dissipate. And I think in the end I had to go on birth control pills to regulate my body. Cause I wasn't getting a period. It's so wild how much your body goes through. Right. I mean, it's like the, mm-hmm. the eggs and then the too many. And then <laughs> not, I mean, it's just like the back and forth. So tell me, how was this affecting you emotionally? I know that you said in the article we were talking about, you kind of laid it out there that you started avoiding like social media and pictures of baby bumps and stuff. And that in your words, you said you felt ashamed and broken, which I think is really common. And I'd love to hear more about why you felt that way and how you got through that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm sure so many people can relate. Um, So for me, it was more than two years into the process before I really began to feel the tinges of bitterness when I saw people seemingly easily get pregnant, Mm -hmm. um, particularly people who already had kids. Mm -hmm. And my feelings really amplified during um, six months later after the IUIs, I experienced a failed adoption and my first two IVF processes Mm -hmm. um, that initially resulted in pregnancies. And then I lost them early on. So those all happened, like those three things happened back to back to back. Whoa, that's Um, a lot. Can we talk about that kind of one by one? Yeah. So my partner and I had always talked about having a biological child and adopting a child. So we went back and forth between the two routes when it 
became clear that, you know, having one biologically wasn't going to come easily to us. And so actually before Clomid or IUI, we went down the adoption path and we faced several barriers. One was the fact that we'd been together for 13 years at that point, but we weren't married. Mm -hmm. And I found out as I started the application process that you need to be married in the state of Virginia where we live if you want to be, if you both want to be legal guardians, which we did. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's different state to state, I would presume, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. I assume I didn't look into it, but yeah, I was pretty shocked by that. Mm -hmm. Um, Coincidentally, one of the reasons why we hadn't gotten married was um, we're, he's, he's a man, but we were not getting married in, uh, as allies to LGBTQT individuals who um, it, gay marriage wasn't legal across the country yet. But coincidentally, within the same month of me finding this out, it, it became the law of the land. Okay. And so that barrier to us getting married was eliminated. And we kind of were like, okay, like, we want to get married. If we want to have a kid, be legal guardians, we'll do it. So we eloped to Las Vegas. My, my partner was having a work conference there anyway. And we mm-hmm. didn't tell anyone except one of my cousins who was in the area who served as our witness. And we just got the marriage certificate so we could try to move forward. Okay. <laughs> <the> option. <laughs> and at that point, we were looking at older children um, to adopt because infant adoption was at least $40,000. And an older child adoption would not have that cost associated with it. But the agency, we were, mm-hmm, the agency we were working with required you to go to five all-day seminars to prepare you because a lot of these children have been in neglectful homes or have faced abuse or have disabilities. Mm-hmm. So they want you to be prepared. Right. But I had to miss one of those five Saturdays for a contract, which if I didn't make that event for work, I would miss the whole contract, nine months of pay. So I was like, well, I have to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, And they wouldn't let us proceed, even though my partner could be at all five. So we were just so frustrated. And so we had to wait until the next year anyway, the next cycle of their classes. So that's when we're like, well, we, you know, then I went to the second OBGYN and learned about Clomid and did the IUI. So we were doing all of that um, because we couldn't really move forward with adoption. Gotcha. So So much going on. Wait, one question about the adoption. What were the age ranges that you were looking at just out of curiosity? Well, we really wanted to be able to raise a child from as early as possible, but just looking on the county's website, like most kids were at least 10 or older. Okay. So we felt a little like less excited about that because we're like, do we suddenly want to have a teenager and not get the chance to raise a child? But we felt like it was cost prohibitive for us to have a, a younger child. Right, right. That's so common too. I'm glad that you mentioned that because it is a very expensive process and not everybody is able to do that. So mm-hmm. thank you for saying that. Yeah. So then after the IOI stopped, uh, we went back to adoption. And I think because we had put so much time and my body had gone through so much with all those different cycles, trying to have a baby, we decided, you know what, we really do want to try to go for the infant adoption. So I was luckily able to take on more work. I was working a full-time job and another job that was 25 to 30 hours a week um, so that we could pay for infant adoption. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a friend of mine that I'd known years ago, she told me about an agency she had just worked with and they were able to work quickly on matching you with the birth mothers. Mm -hmm. Um, So we started working with them. This is... uh, this was in uh, fall of 2016. Mm-hmm. 
and you have to go through this intense home study process and you have to make these birth mother letters and it's it's very intensive and i just like put all my time and energy beyond my work day into that mm-hmm. and we got within 3 weeks of being able to take a baby home and it just it just didn't work out. There were a bunch of different red flags that kept coming up for us with the agency. Mm-hmm. And by this point, we actually had never seen health records for the child, even though, you know, they were eight months along mm-hmm. and the health records we got had some, some problems that made us not trust the agency or the birth mother. And it just became the final straw for us. Mm-hmm. Um, had you met the I wrote birth a lot mother? of other no, we had never met her, but I had talked with her on the phone and texted with her. Uh-huh. And, and how was that? And we had talked to her. What was that like? It was, it was emotional. And I had to keep reconciling, you know, when I kind of growing up envisioned adoption, you think like, oh, it's an orphan who doesn't have a family and you're taking this child who has no one else and you're their family. And I kept feeling this this emotion of being torn. Like this is a birth mother and she already had several kids. And she just said, I just can't, I don't have the energy or the financial means to raise this child. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like it, that doesn't seem right. Like that. I don't know. I just, it just didn't sit right with me. Like this child would has a family, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's just, if circumstances were different, that child would be staying with that family. Right. So it was, it was actually really it brought up a lot of angst and like questioning for me, which uh-huh. also contributed to our decision to not go forward with it. Yeah. But just the whole situation just felt a little different from what I thought it would be like. Yeah. And you had paid some money already though, right? Yeah. By the time that we decided to not go forward, we had paid $20,000 that we did not get back. I think the birth mother was genuine. Mm-hmm. She just wasn't truthful about the history. Yeah. Yeah. I won't get into all of it, but, um, it, it just, it was less about her and more about the agency. And I think the practices, I think they're used to working with a lot of celebrities and I think they're just used to people throwing them money and not caring about the price and not really looking into the ethical side of what they were doing. Okay. I got it. I understand. It was really devastating because we had already started to think about this child as our son and planning for him. And we had bought baby things and people had started gifting us things. We told our employers, we'd started to tell our neighbors, our families all knew. And then to have it not work out, like that's, that's really when I started to get off social media to the extent that I could, because I just, I was really, really, really sad about how it had turned out. Yeah. That is so sad. And it just felt like I've already gone through these other avenues and it just, it felt like I was starting to hit a brick wall of options. Yeah. Yeah. One thing you also talked about that I could totally relate to was just crying on the toilet when you get your period. And tell me a little bit more about that and just some of the other emotions that you were having through this whole ordeal. Yeah. I'd say I was a little bit more... uh, I didn't really get as upset the first year because I was like, ah, you know, it'll happen. I'm 30. But as the years went on, it just, it certainly got harder and harder mm-hmm. um, because I didn't see a, a, a path forward, a, a very direct path forward. And I felt like I was trying and trying and I'm a pretty conscientious goal oriented person who, you know, once I set my mind out to do something, I generally get it done and I just couldn't get this done. Yeah. And 
So, yeah. And so, you know, the, the months where I'd say that I, I would start crying on the toilet, it's often the months where I'd, you know, I'd really made sacrifices in my life to try to get pregnant, like mm-hmm. just giving up a work trip or, you know, doing some, doing things differently that month to really try to make it happen. Or whether it was one of the cycles where I, you know, went to so many doctor's appointments, my mm-hmm. hormones were all out of whack and I felt like I had no control out of my, over my life and it was all for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a marathon runner, I'm sure you know, you're like, okay, so you train and you do X, Y, and, Z, <laughs> and you know, you know, there's an, the end result is you're going to run the marathon and finish the marathon. But this is so different, right? Cause there's not really like a clear path and sometimes you don't get what you want. And I, I can relate to that too. I remember I said that it was like studying as hard as you can for a test and still getting an F. And it's just yeah. like, at a certain point, you're like, what else can I do? Yeah. Exactly. It's very, very frustrating. Yeah. So how were things between you and your partner? Was it, were you guys like on the same page or was it hard on you like relationship wise? Well, so I grew up expecting I'd be a mother, but in my late teens and my twenties, I really wasn't so sure anymore. And my partner wanted to have kids and we began dating at 20. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wasn't totally opposed to it, to having kids, but we kind of agreed around that time. We just decided in our late twenties. And then we did. And I said, okay, at, you know, age 29, I said, okay, I'm ready. We can try for this. And he was really happy about it. And I'd say that the years of struggling really brought us closer together. Oh, that's um, good. I mean, yeah. I know we're lucky because I know it can really hurt a lot of relationships, mm-hmm. but for us, it gave us more time together, um, especially during the IVF process. Cause I stopped pretty much all work travel. Okay. Um, and I, so after ado- the adoption field, that's when we went to IVF and we had, we hadn't done it before because of the cost. And I just was afraid. I didn't know what it would be like. Mm-hmm. Um, but by then my partner had a new job with really good health coverage that enabled us to do IVF. And he also had a flexible work schedule. Okay. So he was able to come to a lot of the main appointments and the procedures with, with me. And that was such a big help. Um, That's for great. three of the four IUIs, I had to go alone mm-hmm. and I did, you know, went alone for so many appointments and mm-hmm. it's just, you just still <laughs> like there's for, you know, if, if you're in a, a relationship, like there's two of you and yet one of us is often doing the bulk of the work, let alone all the, you know, the physical work. So it really did help to have him with me. Mm-hmm. And then because we really only talked about what was going on to a handful of family and friends, we really, really relied on each other for the emotional support. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, if we were lucky, it brought us closer together. So I was 34 for the mm-hmm. first IVF. Um, I grew all the eggs. It was March of 2017. And I did a fresh cycle. So they transferred one into me a couple of days after I had the egg extraction and then they froze the rest. Mm-hmm. And that first one didn't take. And we, we realized that pretty soon after the initial blood tests. So we decided to, we hadn't had our embryos tested to try to like, you know, see what their chromosomes were like. And just, we decided to do that anyway, to try to minimize future miscarriages. So we had seven frozen embryos. And so I had to sort of wait for them to look at those embryos before I could move forward Mm -hmm. with the next um, transfer. And unfortunately, only one of the seven was deemed viable, uh, potentially viable. And then one was deemed inconclusive. 
So they had to unfreeze and freeze them for that. And they you know, did the bi- biopsy. And once my body had like re-regulated and stuff, they tran- I did a frozen transfer of the one that was supposed to be viable. Mm-hmm. And I did get pregnant from it, but that didn't last very long either. How long were you um, pregnant? I got, I had two, I got to do two blood tests and then it, I was losing it. So I guess, I don't know, was it three weeks? I'm sorry, um, yeah. which wasn't long, but to me, like that's the closest I'd ever gotten. And that's the first time I had a home pregnancy test that said pregnant mm-hmm. after all of the years. And wow. I was like, I've done it. You know, I started telling people right away who knew what we were going through. And right. then I had to tur- turn around and say, never mind. Oh gosh, that is so hard. Yeah. But, um, then that third one <laughs> that was deemed inconclusive that when they biopsied it, it again, they were like, you know what, this one could maybe work. So it was our final one. Okay. And that poor little embryo had been frozen and unfrozen three different times. Wow. And yeah. When you get the picture, when you have your transfer, they give you a picture of your yep. embryo at the facility I worked at. And it, the first two times they're like, it's so beautiful. It's lovely. This is going to work great. And this poor third little embryo, they're like, oh, it's a fighter. Oh, <laughs> Was it getting damaged as it was being like thawed uh, and refrozen or do you? Well, because they just took pieces out of it to bi- gotcha. biopsy it. And gotcha. they've done that twice. <laughs> wow. Thing. And by then I just was like, I was sure this wasn't going to work. Right. And I just felt like it's going to, not work and I'm going to have to grow eggs again and start this process all over again. So I was mentally prepared for that. Yes. And you know, the, the first two times I was like, and, and I guess to your question, how much later this, this third transfer, the first one was um, the transfer itself was done in April and this transfer was done at the end of August. So it was pretty, all pretty close together. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so like, you know, the first two times we watched the screen as they're shooting the embryo into me. And this time I didn't even look at the screen. And, you know, the first two times I slept with a picture of the embryo under my pillow. And this time I threw it in my bag. I didn't even look at it. Like I oh, just wow. was done. Just were resigned I to the fact done. that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, and this is still the same year of the failed adoption that happened in January. And this is oh, now August. So I just, I had had it. You'd been through so much. At yeah. what point did you go to this support group that you talked about? Was that in there some at some point or? Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny when I was doing the IUIs process, like I'd see this flyer about a support group in the facility and I was like, well, I'm fine. I don't need anything. And then the next year, the first time I went into um, the appointment for to just say, you know, I'm going to start the IVF process. I was like crying and crying because I was like, here I am again. It's a year later. I've gone nowhere. Mm-hmm. Like I feel so like I, you know, I'm at ground zero again. And I saw that flyer and, um, I was like, maybe I should go to that. Like I'm in a really bad state. Mm-hmm. Um, so they only offered it once a month. So I had to wait a little bit, but it was five days before my embryo, before my egg extraction. Uh-huh. And it was um, the first time that I, my partner came with me and we walked into the room and it was just amazing because everyone in that room understood. And we, there was nowhere else that we had been that was like that. Like we had, you know, well-meaning family members and friends who would just say crazy things. Like my mom would say like, oh, I wish we could find a baby at the fire station for you to have. Right. And, Thanks, you mom. Know, which was well, which was well-meaning because we were watching This Is Us. And it was like well-meaning, but, um, right, right, right. you know, and I had to have a talk with her about things that 
weren't helpful for her to say. And she listened and she, you know, she learned things she could say that did help me. Yeah. But anyway, just being in that room, like you didn't have to explain anything. Like everyone got it. Mm-hmm. And we only went to the one session, but I stayed in touch with two of the women um, by text and we met a couple of times in person. And that was actually the most helpful. They both happened to get pregnant on the cycle they were on. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they were a few months ahead of me as far as like when they got pregnant and they gave me hope, like they were so generous and gave me advice and suggestions and shared their stories and just were there for me. That's so great. Yeah. It was so, so helpful. And you still keep in touch with them now? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's so great. It means so much when you have that stability and just the people that you can share everything with. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about, so IVF number three. So it was the embryo with the picture in your bag. And then what happened? <laughs> um, so uh, I sort of, I know you're not supposed to do the home pregnancy test, but when it's a frozen cycle, you, you kind of can and not have your hormones, hormones totally mess it up. So I did that. And how I long after would, the transfer? Uh, well, it was maybe like nine or 10 days. Okay. So I still had a couple of days before my blood test mm-hmm. and I got a positive and I was crying because I was so mad because I just, I was like, I cannot go through another loss. I cannot go through a fourth loss this year. This is not fair. Just give me a not pregnant so I can start over again. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, I, looking back, it's just, I wouldn't have expected myself to be angry about a positive pregnancy test, but I was yeah. so mad. But you're being honest. And, um, and I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but each day I took my tests and the line got a little darker. So by the time I had my blood test, I had some hope that maybe this was it. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to, I had my test. And when I was waiting for the results, I went to the state park that I love. And I sat there and I just was trying to feel peace and feel relaxed and be ready for the phone call. And the nurse was later than she usually was. And so I had to go home and she called me while I was on the interstate mm-hmm. and my level was 114, which for people who are tracking HCG levels, that's pretty low for your first blood blood test. And it was only one digit off from the first blood test I got the last cycle. So I just was like, oh no, it's going to happen again. In Mm -hmm. two days, I have to go in there and I'm going to lose it. Mm -hmm. And I, after all, despite all the many times they call the nurse had called with bad news, I'd never cried on the phone. And I, I just started crying immediately. And the, and the the poor nurse, she was she was so sweet, and she's like, I, I I thought you'd be really disappointed, but don't give up hope. You're still in this. Don't give up hope. Come back in two days. Mm-hmm. And I was so sad all day, but the next morning, I just woke up feeling peaceful, and I can't explain it, but I just I just had a feeling that whatever I didn't know, like oh, I'm going to be pregnant for sure, but I just felt like whatever was going to happen, I'd be able to handle it. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful that I woke up with that feeling because um, yeah. that helped me get through till I got the the blood test. And actually, I went to the store that day. And while I was there at Target, I saw this little onesie with a rainbow on it. And babies who are born after miscarriages are called rainbow babies. Mm-hmm. And I just, I bought it. I just bought it. Yeah. And I kept saying to myself, you know what? You're pregnant now. Like if you lose this again, worry about it then. Like at that time you can cry, but right now you're pregnant. I was just going to say, you do what you have to do to get through. Sometimes it's just the moments. You just have to get oh, through the oh, moment. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes you're living moment by moment emotionally. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Um, and the next day my nurse called early cause she was so excited and my levels had tripled. Whoa. Tripled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yep. Okay. And every, yeah. And then they just kept going up and we heard <sighs> the heartbeat and yeah, it worked. And I, I, I mean, I, sometimes I'm still in disbelief, like after trying for so many years, yeah. like I just, I'm like, I have a baby. Like yes. I, I was taking pictures of my baby bump, like daily. My parents right. were like, I have never seen anyone take a picture of their stomach so much, but I was like, no, I have to, it's like therapy for me. Like there's a baby in here. Yes. <laughs> so how was the pregnancy? Did you feel good? Did you have any complications? Well, if for an IVF pregnancy, um, you have to keep doing shots and hormones. And because I had done mine back to back, like I was getting bruising and it was so painful. And so the first two months I was still having to have shots and it just was terrible mm-hmm. in that sense. And having the same side effects I'd always had for IUIs and for IVF. Um, so it didn't really feel any different. And then the second trimester was great. And then the third trimester, I was really sick. I was throwing up a lot. I couldn't eat a lot. I I actually lost weight and it was pretty low energy. And Mm -hmm. I had to cancel some trips. Also at the 20 week screening of of the baby, um, they found that he only had one good kidney. Okay. So we had to be monitored. I had to be monitored for that. And near the end of my pregnancy, they saw a lot of extra fluid and they were worried he was going to come early and he did come three weeks early. Okay. So what happens with the kidney? Did they say that, I mean, that wasn't going to be something that would, you know, be fatal, right? I mean, you can live with that, but that must've felt super scary as well. Yeah. I I have to say throughout the pregnancy, I just, I kept feeling like something was going to be wrong. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's because it was so hard to get there that I couldn't believe I was actually going to finally get to have a a child. But I just, I felt, and and I think it was also because I, I, it hadn't even been a year since I'd had the three losses Mm -hmm. for half of the pregnancy. And so I still was just because you get pregnant doesn't make your past sadness immediately go away. And so I was still dealing with it and still upset. So I think that probably contributed to just my fear for the, for my baby. And did you, so yeah, it was not of the baby at that point at the 20 week. Yeah. We found out, um, pre- pretty early on since it had been tested. So I knew it was a boy, which made it that much more real to know the the gender, but yeah, so we had to meet with a nephrologist and kind of learn what does it mean to have one kidney? And it, it's not that big of a deal. He just has to be monitored once a year for his, for life. And, there are early signs uh, if there's starting to be kidney failure and there's plenty of time to try to get, you know, a, another, a kidney transplant. Mm-hmm. So um, that, that alleviated some of our fears because we just really didn't know. Cause I was like, well, if he only has one, like what happens when that one goes, if something happens to it, Yeah. Um, but he can live a normal life. And just now as, as a baby, like we've had to be careful. Some, he can't take some medicines or we have to really watch his hydration. So if, if he starts throwing up, like it can be really scary because, he only has the one good kidney and you right. have to really watch hydration. Gotcha. So then what happened? So the, the rest of the third trimester, you felt pretty sick. And then you said he was three weeks early. Can you tell me about going into labor? Yeah, it's really funny. We had gone to this birthing class about three and a half weeks before my due date. And they talked about the difference between like your water breaking and contractions as far as like signaling that you're ready to give birth. And <laughs> two and a half days later, my water broke. And so we knew what to do because we had gone to that class. Otherwise, I don't know. Oh, thank God you went known. to the class. Good timing. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And it was the middle of the night. So we went, it was, I was just crazy. Cause I was trying to pack my bag and I'm like gushing water. <laughs> wow. It was, uh, it was kind of crazy. Um, but we got to the hospital and I, I, I had to be on an IV because I forget which test you do like around three or four weeks out mm-hmm. from your due date, but they were like testing if I had an infection and they hadn't gotten the results yet. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly. So anyway, I had to be like on an IV and it was, I don't know, it was pretty dramatic, but, and we knew too that we had to, I had to have the baby before too long because of a risk of infection. Uh huh. But the, I mean, the delivery went pretty well. I, I tried to run as, as long as I could during my pregnancy. And I just kept thinking like I'm training for delivery. And I think it really did help me. Uh huh. Um, Cause I was strong through it and I did yeah. it and I got that baby out. <laughs> Good for so. you. So then what happened after he was born? Cause this is not quite the end of the story for you. No, it's not. It was, uh, we had a pretty big shock a couple hours in. So they, after, you know, I finished with all the birthing stuff. I like, they handed me my baby swaddled and it was amazing to have him, to hold him and to, you know, have him outside of me and just, so I just, I don't know. I think I was more in shock though. Like I, I didn't, I couldn't really fully uh, appreciate it maybe. Um, and then about three hours later, a nurse came in and said, Oh, has anyone changed his diaper? And I said, no. And so she took him and then she came back and said, Oh, has the doctor talked to you? And we said, no. And she said, okay, I'll be right back. And the doctor came back in and, and they had missed this before the pediatrician missed it at the initial check over of the baby when he first came out, but he had no butthole and it's a condition called imperforate anus and the kidney, the one kidney can be a cofactor of it. So you can have one kidney and not have this, but if you have imperforate anus, you often only have one kidney. Wow. Um, and this, I mean, it's like, you know, had the middle you of the night. Heard, yeah. Had you ever heard of that before? Cause I certainly, no, you wrote, to no, me. Yeah. No, we, we looked it up immediately on our phones and we just were in shock. And it was like, my sister was in California, so it was still, it was okay to text her, but like my, our parents were asleep. It was, you know, one or two, I can't remember what time it was in the morning. And we were just like, what in the world? And we didn't know like, is he going to die? Can you live like this? Right. And it was, it was just, I I don't know. That night is so traumatic for me because it's, and it's crazy because I finally get this baby and then I'm like, is he going to be taken away? Or were all my, my fears confirmed that something yes. was wrong? Oh my God. Yes. And so they told us it wasn't life-threatening, that there are surgeries that could be done. But the hospital where I delivered, I delivered in a birthing center and the hospital was new and they did not have an intensive care unit for, for babies. Mm-hmm. So he had to be transferred by ambulance to a hospital 30 minutes away. So scary. And did you go with yeah, him? I didn't. And it was a very tough decision to make, but they said only one of us could go and there would be nowhere for me to sleep in the room. Like there was just a chair mm. and I just gave birth a few hours ago. I didn't have sleep the night before. Right. And my, my partner wasn't doing well. He hadn't had enough sleep and he was in shock and I right. didn't feel I could leave him either. Yeah. And there honestly wasn't much I could do for the baby. They weren't going to let me hold the baby or touch the baby. Yeah. Um, so. I made the hard decision to let that baby go in the ambulance. That just must have been, I can only imagine how scary that must have been and how gut-wrenching. And you're so strong that you were able to do that because you're like, I'm going to do what's best for him. Yeah. 
So we tried to get three or four more hours of sleep and then we were discharged and went over to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, you know, we had to meet with all the different doctors and the surgeons and figure out what was going on. Mm -hmm. And I had to meet with a lactation specialist and start pumping. Uh I couldn't do, we couldn't do um, skin to skin contact for two weeks until he was discharged. So we could touch him with gloves through his little incubator near the end of his day, we could hold him in our lap. So we had scrubs on. Uh-huh. Anyway, he had, he had surgery on day three of his life to create a temporary hole on his side of his stomach where waste could come out. Okay. Um, and so he had that, that's how he uh, pooped basically until December. Okay. So they have ago. like a little like bag kind of thing attached. Is that what? Yeah. Yep. So, so like, that was a learning curve to learn how to attach. Th- imagine trying to attach like a plastic bag essentially to, to your child's body and make it stay. Oh <laughs> and God. not have poop leak. Like that was our life for several months was figuring yeah. that out, getting supplies. It would explode. Like uh-huh. it was crazy. And he Were would the, scream. Was the hospital staff, was he in the hospital for a while then? And you Just weren't able to- two weeks. Two weeks. Okay. So then you got mm-hmm. to take him home. Was the hospital yeah. staff helpful or were you guys kind of like left on your own? Like once you got him home to no. learn how to- No, they were really helpful. And in fact, two days later, we were like losing our minds because he'd had, we just couldn't get the bag to stay on and mm-hmm. it was leaking everywhere and he was turning red and in pain there, like rashing mm-hmm. and in desperation. And we hadn't figured out where to buy more supplies from. And they, the hospital let us leave with some supplies, but we had already like gone through them so quickly because we were doing bag after bag after bag. Yeah. And so in desperation, we called and they let us come in and they helped us and they like gave us some different types of supplies to try and showed us again how to do it. And um, we're really kind. So that, that was great. I, I yeah. mean, we've had great medical help all along the way. Um, right. We found a, a specialist center in Columbus, Ohio that we've worked with uh-huh. since then, for, since that surgery. He's, he just had his fourth and fifth surgery there um, this okay. month. Uh-huh. So he's had many surgeries um, and we've checked out there a lot for follow-up appointments. His bladder has stopped working after some of the surgeries. So we had to learn how to use a catheter for him. Oh my God. Can you tell me a little bit more about the other surgeries, if you don't mind? Like what has, what has he had done? Well, he had to have a butthole created uh-huh. and then while that healed and then that had to heal and then he had the ostomy closed off, the, the mm-hmm. side holes closed off. So he okay. could start using... And then at that time, he had an MRI done, and another cofactor of his condition is having what's called a tethered spinal cord. Uh-huh. And so as kids grow, it, it puts tension on their spinal cord, and it can cause a lot of nerve pain, especially in their, their feet and legs. Mm-hmm. And it can also cause bladder issues. So um, that's the main surgery he just had was to detether that. So how have you, I mean, you, you guys have been through so much, and you're so, so, so strong, you and your partner and your son. How have you guys, what do you like tap into to get through some of this stuff? Because I can only imagine how scary it's been and how hard and painful. And, you know, one of the things that you wrote was like, he's amazing and I just hate seeing him in pain. And that, I I feel you on that. I think every parent feels you on that. So tell me how you've, you know, how you've gotten through this and remained strong. I, it's my son's personality. He is the happiest, smiliest baby. And pe- I mean, people say that all the time to us. The medical staff have said that they've never seen a baby smile so soon after surgery. Oh, he 
yeah, he started smiling at week two and he just walks into a room and people like, he is like such charisma. Like people gravitate to him. <laughs> I love he that. He waves now, he claps at people and you know, he's had so much pain that I'm often up with him across the night Yeah, and I'll wake up so exhausted. Like it actually happened this morning and he wakes up and he just starts smiling and cooing. And I'm just like, I can do this. I can do this. Oh, he's that's so, so great. Happy. And I can imagine it would be so much more challenging if he was despondent or, you know, just didn't respond well. Like he's, he's so engaged. Um, yeah. We took him on a tour of a school when he was like nine months old and uh-huh. the, the staff there were like, your baby has in, like intense eye contact. Like he is watching everyone in the room <laughs> and he's just so engaged. He's like thrives on being around other people. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. You said he's the most smiling, upbeat human during the day. And that's what keeps me going. He's a delight mm-hmm. and I do it all again to have him. And that just, yeah. that is, that's motherhood. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that you said that. And I love that you feel that way. And oh my goodness. I know there's, you know, <laughs> you probably have a lot more that you guys are going to go through as he grows up and things change. Mm-hmm. And I just, I'm so inspired by, by you guys and the story and I thank you for sharing it. Is there anything else that you want to say or talk about or or do you have any like words of advice you can share with maybe some listeners who go, who are going through a hard time either with fertility or infertility or just a baby that is not entirely healthy? How can people stay hopeful? Yeah, I think just take a moment and be kind to yourself. These these types of situations are so hard and try to make time for things that can replenish you and lift you up. Like it's, it's really, really important for the, mm-hmm. for the long haul. Cause you don't know in these, in either of the situations, whether it's infertility or a child with medical needs or special needs, you don't know when the end is, or if there ever is an end for mm-hmm. the children. Mm-hmm. So you have to make time each day for yourself and something we're struggling with a little bit, but we're trying to do is, you know, if you have a partner, make time with them too. Mm-hmm. And whatever that looks like, even if it's 15 minutes a day, like it's so important. And then as you're, if you're working to become a parent, like really explore all of your options, make a plan and keep trying, but also know that it's okay to walk away from options that just aren't working for you. Right. It's your life. You decide what you are willing to do and what you want to do. And yeah. So listen to your gut. Hey again, guys. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Holly. I hope you can walk away feeling inspired and a little bit enlightened and just a little more hopeful no matter where you are in your journey right now. I want to thank her again for being so honest and open and for talking to us today. We will continue to bring people's stories to you if you know of anybody who has one who wants to share they can slide into my dms at infertile af stories on instagram or email at infertile af stories at gmail.com thank you guys so much for the support so much more coming your way this fall and i will talk to you guys next time